This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Judith Curry, thank you for joining me finally in the trenches. Oh, my absolute pleasure. By the looks of it, the weather is quite decent on your side of the world right now. Um, it's been very cold for a month. Um, we've got a little bit of snow on the ground and um, we're expecting a storm on Sunday, an atmospheric river. but. We're, we're getting rain and snow, which is very good because the U.S. West has been in a drought. So any rain and snow, well, the whole northern hemisphere has been cold, was really cold in, <laughs> in November. And it looks like it's starting off that way again in December. So um, lots of weather variability and climate variability on all scales from sub-seasonal, seasonal, interannual, decadal, and on all up, you know, the time spectrum. <laughs> and, you know, and to bring global warming into it, trying to unravel any signal in extreme weather or anything associated with the slow creep of global warming is very difficult. Well, what is your, your bio, your background? Okay, my background, I, I spent most of my career in academia. I mean, I'm one of these people who just never left school. You know, I went through and got my PhD and then did a postdoc and then various faculty positions. I moved around to several universities. Um, I retired in 2017 from the Georgia Institute of Technology, where I had been chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. And now I have my own company, of which I'm president of, called Climate Forecast Applications Network. And I also do a fair amount of public outreach. I have a blog, Climate Etc., which you can find at judithcurry.com. When we talk about climate change, what is it that we are talking about? Well, we're talking it, okay. <laughs> what geologists talk about versus what politicians talk about is two different things. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change defined climate change to be human-caused warming. <laughs> you know, completely, essentially defining, they say, oh yeah, well, there's natural variability, but change is really associated with human activity which completely flies in the face of what geologists and oceanographers and atmospheric scientists know. So it depends on who you're talking to, um, what they mean by climate change. But apart from the actual weather aspect of climate change, it's become this whole political movement, this whole catchword, everything that goes on in the world is now blamed on climate change, even nonsensical things. Um, it's become this convenient scapegoat. Well, if you have a problem in your country associated with bad governance, <laughs> bad luck, whatever, blame it on climate change and maybe somebody will throw money at you. Uh, and it also lets the politicians off the hook from actually 
trying to understand and solve the real problems. So climate change has become this catch-all term that has become, hey, sorry, that has become divorced from any kind of scientific meaning. Just for clarity, Judith, what is the climate? Uh, well, we usually refer to the surface climate where people live. You can talk about the climate of the deep ocean or it, it's just the, the more longer term statistics or characteristics. Um, and, and again, I, as I mentioned early on, there's this whole spectrum of variability. So trying to say, oh, it's 30 years or something. No, that's not really true. I mean, there's just a whole spectra of variability. Most people refer to the surface climate, you know, the rain, the temperatures, the winds, things like that, extreme weather events. That's usually what they are talking about when they talk about climate. So climate is some sort of an envelope for surface weather. But it seems to be very vague, though. It is very vague. Like I said, there's a whole spectrum. There's a whole spectrum of timescales that the atmosphere and the ocean co-vary. And then you get occasional insults, you know, from the solid earth, like volcanoes or whatever, um, solar variability. All these things contribute to climate change. And... You know, the climate is some sort of average sense. Now, if you were a planetary science scientist and you're talking about, you know, the climate of the planet, it would be something that's sort of very simple related to energy balances and you wouldn't even particularly focus on the surface climate. Um, so, you know, it depends on who you're talking to, a planetary scientist, a geologist, a meteorologist, a politician, <laughs> you know, everybody has their different definitions. I mean, the fact that some people would call, well, you look up and see a cloud or a clear sky, you know, that's maybe, I wouldn't call that climate. That might be, you know, the variability of the daily weather, whether it's cloudy or not. Well, CO2 is one greenhouse gas. I mean, water vapor is far and away the dominant greenhouse gases. Then you have you know, CO2 is the next important one. Then you have methane and nitrous oxide and these various smaller ones. But thinking that these, okay, on some sort of, if you're a planetary scientist and you're just looking at the overall planet, the, the greenhouse gases are, you know, some sort of control on overall climate, uh, like millennial kind of timescales. But if you're talking about you know, decadal kind of time scales. There's a whole lot of things that are more important. You know, the, the ocean, large scale ocean circulations are much more important determinants of climate on decadal kind of time scales, the random volcanoes, solar variations, stuff like that. These are all important contributors. So this isn't all just about CO2 or even all of the greenhouse gases, there's a whole lot of other things going on in the climate that sort of get lost when you start talking about climate change and it's all caused by humans. Well, that's a joke because there's lots of year-to-year -year variability. There's lots of regional variability. There's clearly a lot more going on than just CO2 because the CO2 is doing this relentless 
sort of slow creep upwards. I mean, it's not providing the source of any of the year-to-year regional variability that we see. And it's extremely small. Well, yeah, it's small, but it has um, infrared emission bands. Like there's a lot of nitrogen in the atmosphere, but who cares? Because it doesn't have any infrared emission bands. Okay, so, so the actual amount on a per molecule basis, methane is more potent than CO2 but it has a lower concentration. So, you know, trying to talk about climate change just in context of greenhouse gases really doesn't get you all that far. How important is CO2? Well, yeah, I mean, if CO2 goes too low, I mean, the plants can't, you know, photosynthesize. So. Um, you know, just if you're talking about plants, more CO2 is probably better. Um, there's, uh, in terms of the overall health, I mean, it seems like, you know, based on satellite observations for the past several decades that the planet has been greening. Um, part of that is from CO2, and part of that is just from overall more rainfall. The warmer the climate, the more rainfall. Yeah, more rainfall can mean bad floods, but, Okay, if you're talking about Asia, where, you know, two-thirds of the world's population live, I mean, they're water stressed. They've got too many people, (laughs) you know. So if it was, you know, I've often wondered if if climate policy was decided on one person, one vote, um, you know, the people in the Asian monsoon region would all vote for more warming because they need more water, you know. So... It's, it's apart from what's causing the warming, you know, we have to ask, is the warming dangerous? I think that's the more important uh, thing to be talking about because the climate, you know, the climate's going to do what it's, it's going to do and thinking that we can control it or stop this or whatever is, I think, pretty misguided. <laughs> it's just, you know, even if we were to be successful in going to net zero emissions, there's so much inertia in the climate system, we probably wouldn't see it equilibrate for several hundred years and we wouldn't really notice. So um, the question we have to confront is, you know, is this dangerous? <laughs> Where is it dangerous? How is it dangerous? Um, what are the benefits? In some places there's actually benefits. And then figure out how we can adapt and, and live within our you know, the constraints of our climate, which, I mean, one degree is really a pretty small amount. I mean, it's a slow creep. Um, warmer climates on long time scales, yeah, you're gonna overall um, melt some of the ice sheets, you know, on tens of thousands of years, but you may go through a period where you're actually accumulating more snow on the ice sheets because there's just overall more rain and snow in a warming climate. So, so none of this is simple. Um, you know, we just need to figure out how to live with it. <laughs> you know, whatever's going to happen, because like, even if we were successful at net zero, we wouldn't really notice the difference because there's just so much going on with natural weather and climate variability. What does one degree increase mean over 100 years? It means one degree increase over 100 years. I mean, it means 
a little bit of sea level rise. Um, Which is easy to counter. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if it's not catastrophic, if you're talking about like one foot a century, which we've been seeing, you know, for the last essentially 200 years, um, you know, that's not a big deal. You know, if all of a sudden there's a big ice sheet collapse or something crazy happens and you have, you know, three, four, five feet, um, then that's a bigger deal. And then if something really catastrophic happened, like complete collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, you know, you're talking about more than 10 feet, which people would notice. But, you know, the Netherlands, <laughs> I mean, the whole country is under sea level and parts of it are as much as seven feet below sea level and they figured it out. So this doesn't have, you know, in a lot of places you can move inland, the small islands, atolls a lot of those are rising they're not necessary they're not necessarily you know getting drowned you know as everybody thought they would you know a lot of them are actually accreting land some of those atoll islands you know so it's just you know it's not this this catastrophe um I would say, and, and we just can't keep dumping endless amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere on a rapid time scale. I mean, to me, that seems like a little bit dangerous to do, but destroying our whole civilization and the infrastructure, the energy infrastructure that we've built up, you know, over the last century, just in case CO2 might be bad. And now they're out destroying the food supply. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, no, we can't have fertilizer. No, we can't have cows. No, we can't have this. I mean, I'm, I'm getting emails from people all over the world, most recently from New Zealand. What do we do? <laughs> you know, this is crazy. You know, what do we do? People aren't going to be able to eat. You know, we're going to lose our family business. You know, what do we do? I wish I had an answer. And, and, you know, and science isn't going to help. I mean, this whole thing has <laughs> left the bounds of science, you know, at least a decade ago. I mean, it's just got momentum on its own, and it's just pure crazy. Which trails which? Does temperature trail CO2, or does CO2 trail temperature, or are they not linked? Oh, they're linked. It's a feedback process, you know, sometimes... The impetus comes from CO2, and sometimes the impetus comes from temperature. So there's a feed, there's, there are feedback processes between temperature and CO2. So that's not usually a useful argument to say, you know, w which causes which, because it really is a feedback process between the two. I've read a little bit of the IPCC's reports over the last few decades. And they almost never refer to the sun. How important is the sun? Oh, the sun is is very important. Um, yeah, they don't. Okay. It's an interesting story about the sun. The IPCC reports, you know, assumed that it was like really fat, flat, that there was a little bit of a bubble in the 50s and then it's flat. And even if we went into a maunder minimum, a grand solar minimum, it would be a tenth of a degree. Well, they're missing two boats. Okay, the first off is we don't really understand how the sun has varied 
over the past century, even during the period when we have satellite observations. What happened around 1990? And this was the time of the space shuttle explosion. We had a satellite up there measuring you know, solar variation. I think it was called ACRAM-1. They were launching ACRAM-2 so it would have a period of overlap with ACRAM-1 so they could make sure that everything was calibrated between the two satellites. When the Challenger, the shuttle Challenger exploded, then all space launches were put off in the US and we missed the opportunity to have that overlap between ACRAM-2 and ACRAM-1. So, there's, so, so you've got this gap, five-ish years, and depending on how you interpret that gap, you have high solar variability you know, over the last 50 years or low solar variability. And it's something that we don't know how to resolve. Um, we can only resolve it you know, going through another few solar cycles and get some better understanding of what's going on. But we don't know how to resolve that. So the IPCC adopted the low variability scenarios, whereas other scientists, you know, but, but in the latest IPCC report, they did acknowledge this. You know, there's a huge range about what it could have been. Okay, but when they forced the climate models, <laughs> they used the low variability scenario. Okay, so, you know, what, what are we to make of that? Now, the other, apart from just the pure energy from the sun, there's other things going on from the sun called solar indirect effects. You know, these are the cosmic rays, the ultraviolet effects, and there's magnetic field effects. There's all sorts of other solar effects that are being studied by people, but they're not really included in what I would call the sun climate effect, and certainly not by the mainstream. I mean, some scientists are looking at that, but in the IPCC, they, they just don't mention the solar indirect effects at all. And there's some indirect evidence that they can be quite large. And they would explain if the large variability hypothesis is true rather than the low variability, then it would probably be caused or amplified by these indirect solar effects. So this is hanging out there. So if you adopt the high variability solar variability hypothesis, this explains most of the warming <laughs> in, the, in the late 20th century. So this is sitting out there as a major uncertainty, <laughs> you know, that the IPCC ignores, you know, and people like me and the skeptics and whatever say, but, but the sun. Um, but it's a serious unknown and uncertainty. Um, and, you know, we had a, a a millennial scale solar maximum in the late 20th century. And in the 21st century, you know, the, the, the solar effect will be smaller than the 20th century. Some people think we might have some sort of a significant minimum. I don't know. I think we will have a century scale minimum. People think maybe there's a 10 chance, 10% chance of something like a wander minimum. But you know, it's a scenario that should be put out there. It's far more plausible than, say, the high emissions scenario, RCP 8.5. You know that they spend a lot of time talking about. So you know that this whole climate issue has been defined in terms of emissions, and we're not looking at a sufficiently broad range of natural scenarios like the solar scenarios. In the beginning of the 
19th century, early 1800s, there was a sequence of crazy huge volcanic eruptions that you know gave a, a, a final boost to the little ice age. And since the mid like 1850 till now, we've had very low volcanic activity. In fact, the lowest in the past millennium. So why would we expect that to continue into the 21st century? Well, personally, I don't really expect it. You know, we could have some big volcanic eruptions that would be game changers. Pinatubo was the biggest eruption in that period, 1850 to present. And that was like a medium intense one. You know, there've been ones that have been orders of magnitude in the early 1800s, Tambora. This is like a Pacific Island erupted. And this was like the year without a summer. <laughs> you know, like this was like a huge impact. And then in the 1300s, there was this huge mega, mega, mega one called Sambalas in like the 14th century, 1352, something like that. So like we should be looking at possible volcanic scenarios, which could, you know, be a complete game changer. So in terms of what's going to happen in the 21st century, I mean, and we have all these targets and all this stuff and all these precise amount of CO2 before you reach 1.5 C or 2 degrees C. I mean, it's a joke. It's a joke. And this is not to mention what I think is the biggest factor is the large scale ocean circulations on decadal to century timescales. Um, right now, we're in the warm phase of the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. Okay, and this is a, sort of a pattern of, of sea surface temperatures in the North Atlantic. Um, if history and paleoclimate is any guide, we should see this flipping to the cold phase on the time scale of a decade or so, which is going to have a big impact, not just on you know the weather of Western Europe and the U.S., but also on Greenland snow accumulation, the Arctic sea ice, and on and on it goes. I mean, that's going to be a big game changer when that flips to the cold phase. So, you know, there's lots of things going on in the climate that are natural that, to me, I think are going to dominate in coming decades. How scientific is climate science then? Okay, climate, okay, when I, back in the 70s, when I was in graduate school, the field of climate science didn't exist. Climatology might have been a, a small subfield of geography where you calculate statistics, you know, in a given region. <clears throat> the parent disciplines, you know, are geology, oceanography, and atmospheric science. Those are the parent disciplines. Okay, and it wasn't even, it wasn't really until 2000, the year 2000 or so, well, maybe the not late 90s where you started to see these majors like environmental studies and stuff like that, where they, it became like combining climate and environmental science with um, policy and stuff like that. And it was a soft core degree, no math, no physics required. It was very... It was pretty soft core, but now a lot of, there's tons of climate degrees out there and sustainability degrees. And there's 
almost no hard science in it. Not to say that there aren't, you know, a few hardcore universities, University of Chicago comes to mind that are maintaining their, you know, the kind of focus that I got in graduate school that is, of course, has evolved as um, the science and technology has evolved. But most of what climate science is now fluff. Okay, it's now fluff. And it's politicized. Oh, heavily politicized. Yeah. Um, you know, people don't know how to reason who are getting these degrees. They know how to recite the party line. Um, yeah, they know how to cite the party line. And the, the, the killer thing is, is that the IPCC, you know, I've been critical of the IPCC. Um, the IPCC fifth assessment report and sixth assessment report were better than the third and fourth. And I think that the sixth assessment report, working group one, um, which is a physical basis, was actually pretty good, with the notable exception of really screwing up, you know, missing <laughs> the sun effects. But but there are a lot of good things in it. And the fifth assessment report, I thought they did very good on the second working group, which is impacts, and the third working group, which is mitigation. So there is some good that comes out of the IPCC, but it's sporadic from working group to working group and report to report. It depends on who's in charge, you know, so it's you know, all this consensus stuff. Well, if you put, you could easily pick a different group of people and come up with something pretty different. So, but, but there is some value to it. Um, but these people who are spouting off all this stuff with these degrees, it, it's, it's, it's even become divorced from the IPCC. Mm. Citing the IPCC has become a favored tactic, you know, of the skeptics. <laughs> you know, um, you know the, the, the alarmed people, the advocates, you know, they've taken off and sort of left the moorings of even the IPCC. You said consensus. Obama once upon a time said 97% of scientists agree. <laughs> okay. Well, well, this is great. Okay. Now, this came from a paper that was written by John Cook, who authored, and he was, I think, a graduate student in social psychology at the time. And he had a team of people who went through and did some kind of automated search of abstracts and inferred from these abstracts how many of these endorsed climate change. Now, in, in a real science journal, I've never read an article that says, I endorse, you know, CO2 as a cause of global warming. No, they're talking about all sorts of stuff. You know, they claim things like um, using cook stoves in South Asia as pro-global warming. It didn't say anything about global warming. It was about using cook stoves in Asia. I mean, it just made absolutely no sense. Okay. But, okay, Obama picked it up and tweeted about it, and of course it went viral. Okay, so he, Obama said 97% of climate scientists agree that global warming is dangerous. First off, as bad as the paper was, it never said anything about 97% of scientists. It, said it was 97% of the abstracts that they looked at. And the paper said nothing about dangerous. 
So Obama was being a consensus entrepreneur, where you take <laughs> consensus on something that's very basic and fairly meaningless, like CO2 contributes to warming, and then extend it to mean whatever you want it to mean. So Obama was sort of led the way for consensus entrepreneurship, which now runs rampant all over the place. <laughs> If I watch or if I read the bastion of truth, CNN, um, <laughs> I will, I will, I will think that Armageddon is on its way. We have extreme weather coming out of our ears. Okay, we've been in a fairly, a relatively benign period of what? Okay, the last say four or five years have been a bit rough. But this is just part of those ocean oscillations. You know, your combination of warm phase of the AMO and cool phase of the PDO is always going to cause you, you know, global awful weather. Okay, and, and we'll slip out of that, you know, on the time scale of a decade. But in the U.S., um, far and away, the worst weather in the historical records was the 1930s. Floods, droughts hurricanes, forest fires, the whole work, you know, far and away, heat waves, even the heat waves in 1930 were worse than ones in the rest, last decade. So, I mean, the weather was far and away the worst. Okay, uh, if you want to South Asia, another area where I do a lot of research, uh, people who are worried about the monsoons, well, the mon you know, people moan and groan about the year to year variability, the monsoon, what's global warming gonna do to us? <laughs> well. If, if you look back, okay, in the 1890s, there were multi-year periods of monsoon failure. You know, in the 1700s, there was like the, like decades, you know, almost no monsoon rainfall. So like natural variability can provide you with lots of bad weather, lots of bad weather. And thinking that what we've been facing lately is caused by global warming is basically a joke. You know, it's very hard to tease out you know, when you have an extreme event. Okay, well, what caused it? Natural weather variability, land use changes, floods are invariably, you know, a result of, you know, building in a floodplain where you know you're going to get flooded, things like that, and the slow creep of global warming. I mean, and people, you know, oh, well, we have, you know, a 1% increase in the amount of rain that could have fell in Hurricane Harvey because of the, you know, well, we were still going to have Hurricane Harvey. You were still going to have a lot of rain. So you got two more inches, you know, associated with global warming, maybe, you know, is that, you know, so what difference does that make? Not a huge lot of difference. So the whole extreme weather thing, um, actually, I have a story to tell about that because say circa, you know, in the 2000, mid 2000s, 2005, you know, people were saying, yeah, okay, we get global warming, climate change, but one degree, so what? You know, temperatures change up and down all the time. Well, I, I invariably contributed to telling them about why they might care about a degree. So Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005 and wiped out the city. I mean, it was the biggest modern disaster in U.S. history. Um, 
two weeks following Katrina, a paper that I co-authored in Science was published. Don't remember the exact title, but we found that the percent of category four and five hurricanes had doubled since 1970. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, global warming. I mean, now we know who cares about one degrees. Now we know one degree can double the, you know, the percentage of bad hurricanes. Okay, and so then people said, ah, okay, El Gore was all over this. Um, the environmental advocacy groups to go, you know, we didn't blame it on CO2. Okay, we blamed it on the overall, you know, it was coincident with the warming trend. And we acknowledged that there were a lot of data problems in the early part of the record. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't really tie this to global warming, but people took this and ran with it. And, and this started the whole emphasis on, you know, never let a disaster go to waste, <laughs> you know, blame it on, on global warming. And then, you know, this will amp up the hysteria so people will stop burning fossil fuels. Okay, and that's a strategy that we've seen for almost 22 years now. But there's very little, okay, in the way. You know, if any place you, you've had an extreme weather event, a really bad one, and you say, is, is it global warming? Well, if you go back in the historical record to, say, 1900, you'll probably find something worse. And if mm. you didn't, look at the paleoclimate record, and you'll definitely find something worse. You know, this is, you know, there's nothing unprecedented here that's happening because of global warming. I think it was the 1970s uh, in which they were basically warning against global cooling. Then suddenly in the 90s, it flipped to everything's going to overheat. And it seems to me like there's a bit of schizophrenia going on here. Okay, two things in play. One is the media. Sure, there were some scientists talking about it. There were other scientists talking about warming. You know, there were scientists talking about a lot of things. Okay, but the media picked up on it. And, you know, the media amplifies all of this. You know, they, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. Um, that said, that the two periods are not completely parallel because we know a whole lot more about how the climate works than we did now than we did in the 1970s. So it's not completely parallel, but it does emphasize the role of the media in amplifying, in amplifying things. I mean, the new twist on this, nobody was pretending there was a consensus back in the 1970s. The new twist on this is the IPCC um, manufacture of consensus and the subsequent enforcement of consensus. Is Earth warming? Okay, where? On the surface? <laughs> um, it depends on where you're talking about. In the upper atmosphere, in the deep ocean. Okay, if you're just talking about the surface, well, overall, there's a well, warming trend. Depends on the time scale yeah. you're talking about. Um, since 2016, we've cooled a little bit. <laughs> you know, there's lots of scales of variability. Um yeah, so so overall, there's a global warming trend for the last more than 100 years. But if you look at it on decadal scales or subdecadal scales, or you look at it regionally, you know, you don't necessarily see a warming trend. The, the, the whole, you know, yeah, it, it, it is warming. CO2 is contributing to it. Um, the, the weakest part of the argument is warming dangerous. 
(laughs) That's a part that they haven't really made a very strong case for. Because, you know, just in terms of heat wave versus heat versus cold mortality, an order of magnitude people die globally from cold than from heat. Okay. Um, <laughs> that That's very robust. It's been, you know, hundreds of paper document that in many different countries all over the world. Okay. Um, which is worse, floods or drought? Mm. Well, <laughs> you can figure out how to manage both. Okay. And then they try to blame like, Oh, but now global warming caused more variability. You know, one year we have drought, the next year we have floods. Well, no, it's always been variable. Um, If you're looking for the slow creep of warming, you're just going to have more water in most places, um, which is a good thing if you can figure out how to manage it because people need water. Plants need water. Just have to figure out how to manage it. So, you know, when you have too much, you know, you need reservoirs and this, that, and the other. And careful with how you use your land. You know, if you're on a place that can flood, you need to be using it in a way that isn't damaged too much by the flood, either from, you know, if you're agricultural or property development or whatever. How significant is the influence or impact of? Uh, let's say geoengineering or weather manipulation. Um, it's talked about. Nobody's attempting. I mean, other than some cloud seeding. Um, I know the Russians seed clouds. Some people try, you know, think that you can get more snowfall in the mountains by seeding clouds. And you know, it's a it's a game of statistics. It's hard to find find an effect. But when you're talking about what I would call solar geoengineering, like putting you know a bunch of small particles into the stratosphere to act like a volcano or something like that. Well, you don't want to go there. I mean, there's inadvertent climate. Yeah. Yeah. There's inadvertent climate modification going on all the time with land use. I mean, you know, we clear forests, we cement over cities, you know, all of this kind of stuff. It It impacts certainly the local to regional climate and, has some cumulative effect on the global climate. So we're doing inadvertent (laughs) engineering and modification of our climate. Um, So I think trying to impact, the the only thing that sort of makes sense to me is is to try to, and this goes back to sea level rise, is to try to maybe engineer the environment, say over the um, Greenland. Okay, sort of maybe slow down the melting during midsummer, you know, for one month in midsummer, you know, with some reflective stuff or whatever. It wouldn't really impact the global climate or have much of an effect outside of Greenland, but it could help slow the melting, stabilize Greenland ice sheets, something like that. So so some some targeted things like that could make sense, but not the wholesale what you call solar geoengineering. And people, and it doesn't make sense. Um, People talking about, you know, direct air capture of carbon, trying to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Well, if it turns out to be not, if excess CO2 in the atmosphere turns out not to be a problem, you've invested a whole lot of money in technology that has no other use. So it's money down the black hole. 
you know, I, I don't think it will ever be needed myself. But if it was needed, um, I assume that, you know, we'll be smarter in 10 or 20 years time and we can figure out how to do it then. Um, but I don't know, a lot of stupid decisions are being made based on the apocalyptic rhetoric and the urgency from all the people at the UN. It's just, I mean, like it's, it's completely unmoored from science and common sense at this mm. point. It's also probably a bad idea to play God. Oh, absolutely. All sorts of unintended side effects, unintended side effects. If you did something like that, change the precipitation patterns, people suing each other over this and that, and a lot of unintended consequences. Is the best response no response or is some response good or what? The best response is make sure everybody eliminate energy poverty, make sure everybody has enough energy. And for now, that's fossil fuels promote economic development in the poorest countries, many of which are in <clears throat> Africa. Fight against food poverty. Okay, the UN has these sustainable development goals and they make reasonable sense. The first one is eliminate poverty. Second one is, you know, eliminate hunger worldwide. Number seven is make sure everybody has enough energy. Number 13 is climate action. Okay, so how is climate action now trumping all of these other things? It's screwing up development, it's screwing up our energy supply, and now it's screwing up our food supply. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So yeah. people who are prosperous can figure out how to protect themselves from whatever the vagaries of weather and climate variability throw at us. So the it is economic development is really the answer and we need we need more energy not less and for now that's fossil fuels sure the rich rich countries can afford to experiment with all these different technologies and that's great and some of them will prove to be better in a decade or two but right now just <clears throat> going crazy and installing wind and solar farms it's not going to replace fossil fuels it's going to screw up you know our land use and ecosystems and it's not going to provide the power we need and it's not going to displace fossil fuels i mean because the need for them is still so overwhelming until geothermal or nuclear energy you know really comes online especially with some of the newer technologies which are pretty exciting so you know we're stuck with fossil fuels for now for better or for worse um so but it needs to you know the next two decades should be a period of technological development and experimentation you know with new things uh, we need to lose the mad rush to install wind turbine i mean the supply chain you know the mineral the demand for minerals and a lot of which come from africa and the congo nigeria and stuff like that I mean, we're going to run up against supply chain issues. I mean, there just isn't enough there. I mean, all of this is causing conflicts, you know, in these countries. You know, <laughs> it's just not a good thing. I mean, the supply chains are orders of magnitude inadequate, mm. you know, for, for the battery storage and the electric vehicles and the wind turbines and the solar panels. I mean, it just can't happen. 
you know, we're, we're materials limited. Um, it's just not going to happen that way. So we need to come up with um, things that aren't so material intensive. I mean, geothermal and nuclear, I mean, you know, to me seem like if I had to look ahead 50 years, we're going to see things dominated by nuclear and geothermal. And I mean, when I drive, when I drive up the coastline and I see all these wind farms, they're almost never turning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the intermittency, okay, apart from the supply chain and the materials, I mean, it's intermittent. I mean, the sun is semi-predictable, um, but the wind <laughs> is very unpredictable. And you can have these extensive wind droughts, you know, that go on for a month at a time. You know, and if you're relying on the wind, well, you can't, you know, and say, well, we double the number of wind turbines, triple order of magnitude. That's still not going to help if the wind's not blowing. Okay, so it, it's just, oh, well, we need batteries. I mean, right now, the batteries that we have, you know, can cover a gap of a few minutes to an hour. And they're very expensive, very resource intensive. And there's no way that batteries... Um, are gonna store energy at the utility scale. Here's an anecdote back to President Obama. Okay, so worried about climate change. So he built, he buys this new crazy estate in Martha's Vineyard, which is right on the coast of Massachusetts. And he just purchased a 5,000 gallon propane tank <laughs> to, to fuel his house, you know, in case the power goes out, in case, in case uh, Massachusetts renewable electricity turns out to be unreliable. I mean, you know, there's so much hypocrisy, so much hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, but he's also I'm on the coastline. I, I thought the, I thought the oceans are going to rise. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been a vocal opponent of energy apartheid and green colonialism and all that, I think it's reprehensible, absolutely reprehensible. And the hypocrisy of raiding fossil fuels in Africa, <laughs> sending it to Europe while they won't approve any loans so Africa can build its own fossil fuel power plants to help develop its economy. I'm sorry, the hypocrisy makes me absolutely ill. There is another aspect to the climate change propaganda that we haven't touched on. Um, and that is the influence of young people. I think of Greta, for example. Okay, well, <clears throat> well, Greta's a very interesting person. Um, remarkable in any ways. I mean, dead wrong, but I find her to be an honest, sincere, she's not a liar. She's not playing politics. You know, there's certain things to admire about Greta. Um, so I'm never going to badmouth Greta other than say that she's wrong a lot of the, most of the time. Um, but some of these other goons, you know, stop the oil, extinction rebellion and whatever. I mean, I classify these people as goons. Um, you know, they're thugs, you know, they've latched onto something, but then there's another element of this. And this is one that I've been looking into. There are a lot of young adult kids, teenagers, young adults who are extremely depressed, even suicidal over the global warming. We're not going to have futures, on and on it goes. And this is real. I get emails from a lot, 
you know, a fair number of these people, you know, the teenagers and the young adults, you know, they're just getting brainwashed and <clears throat> they're st and, and the stuff, the curricula in the schools is terrible. Is brainwashing the kids and they're trying explicitly in the US, you know, all the National Education Association ex explicitly trying to brainwash the kids and turn them into activists on this issue. I mean, it's just absolutely horrible. Um, and no wonder the kids, uh, and the, even the small kids, there's this little storybook. I think it's Greta Thunberg's World or something like it. It's, it's aimed at three years to eight years. And it has stuff in the, the um, Greta doesn't think she has a future because of global warming. Why should she go to school? You know, <laughs> they're meaning to, you know, three to eight years old. No wonder they're upset. No wonder they're whatever. And I think this is just horrible. Okay, so you've got this whole spectrum. You know, this is, I really worry about the kids that are getting brainwashed. I mean, at some level, Greta was sort of brainwashed. But, you know, I, I put Greta, in, Greta's in a different class from the Extinction Rebellion and these other people because I think she has some admirable qualities. Um, as a person, she's just wrong a lot. You know, she, she's remarkable. She's just wrong. Um, but these stop the oil, you know, throwing tomato soup at the masterpieces and gluing themselves on highway. Th these people are flat out morons and they're being paid. You know, the people behind these are um, the Getty fortune and the Rockefeller fortune and even a Kennedy um, are funding all this, you know, putting big money into this. So this is very well organized. These morons are actually getting paid to do the stupid stuff. I mean, it's, it's just beyond stupid. How do we push back? <laughs> um, you know, the, the stupidity of this, I mean, the, 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 the war in Ukraine, mm. okay, help people understand, oh, energy security matters. You know, it's just not about, oh, cost matters. You know, reliability matters. Oh, we thought the only thing that mattered was CO2 emissions. So I think a lot of people now realize that and people are not willing to sacrifice energy security for this. At least, okay, Europe and the US and Australia seem to be going off the walls. Um, but, you know, <laughs> at least in the U.S. and Australia, all this can flip with uh, the next election. In the Europe, you know, it's more <laughs> institutionalized. It's harder to get rid of. Um, and, you know, it, it's, things are a bit volatile in England also. That's an interesting one because they're no longer tied to the EU. Um, so, you know, realities, and, and once you see, you know, the say when the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation flips cold and the sea ice recovers a bit and, and Greenland slows down, you know, um, then they'll say, oh, that's natural variability. Then, okay, but global warming. But then once I start mentioning natural variability then people like me are, have increased credibility. But, you know, I... I'm hoping what, what I'm saying sounds like common sense. 
And it sounds like it's you know reasonably grounded in science, and I even refer to the IPCC a lot. Okay, nevertheless, I seem to be a major public enemy on numerous social media platforms. <laughs> I had a semi-viral video that I recorded a few weeks ago with Biz News, and I thought it was a great interview, and apparently the- other people did too. 500,000 views in one week. I mean, that meets my personal definition of viral. I never had anything like that. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> you couldn't find it. I mean, it was effectively um, shadow banned. Uh, you could only find it if you go to the Biz News TV channel, and, and it's there. Um, on Twitter, after e- I was shadow banned on Twitter after Elon Musk took over a week after that, all of a sudden, my followers mentioned started exploding. I hadn't gained any new followers in years. Um, now, now this one is really crazy. Um, I'm working with two authors of new novels. It's a it's a new fictional genre, dystopian net zero fiction. You know, it's like five, ten years in the future about you know what this has brought us to, and they're both really, really good books. Okay, so the first one, you know, has hit Amazon, and I tweeted about it. And all of a sudden, I just got an email right before this interview saying, saying this is the book has been blocked from being searched on certain search engines. Okay, just based on my tweet. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, all I can say is God bless Elon Musk, who's trying to do something about all this with Twitter. You know, he's introducing some chaos into the whole thing, but I'm good with it because I think, you know, we need to shut, you know, we need to let the sunlight in. We need to have, you know, these voices heard and not these little goons working at Microsoft or Twitter. Ooh, this sounds, you know, I don't like this person or somebody said she's bad, you know, let's ban her, wipe her out. I guess YouTube is owned by Google. So I guess my, my name is Mud at Google and Microsoft and I don't know, but at least I'm, <laughs> I'm back on track on Twitter. And and what I'm saying, you know, is not crazy in any way. It's pretty mainstream, but I am regarded as dangerous. I mean, a mild-mannered grandmother like me, you know, regarded by Google and all these big guys as dangerous. You know, it, it's... On one level, it's comical. On other, on another hand, it's very worrisome. When you can't, when common sense, you know, I'm not talking, you know, I'm trying to help people. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to promote violence or hate speech or anything like that. I'm trying to help people. Um, and, and why I should be banned or censored, you know, it just sort of beggars belief. But it is what it is, and hopefully (laughs) Elon Musk at least will sort of show the way, and maybe some of this will improve. You're standing on the battleground of the information war, and you're looking out at the horizon. What do you see? (laughs) What do I see in the information? Well, first, um, I think people are winning. I love Substack. I love what Barry Weiss is doing. 
okay, some of these alternative people who've left the mainstream media and they've started their own thing and it's becoming really successful and, and, you know, financially successful and they're actually making money and they can hire teams. And I think that's wonderful. Um, So I, I think it's gonna be very hard to keep this down. I think at some point, like the Googles and whatever are gonna start to lose market share. You know, I think it's gonna happen. We'll see, but I think that there's so many new things popping up. You know, the communications are there for good. I love Twitter because it covers such a broad range of people and topics and whatever. I mean, I love Twitter. it's my favorite. So I'm glad to see that that's back on track. Although I saw a tweet just before we started the interview from Elton John. Dear fans, I'm sorry I'm leaving Twitter. I can no longer (laughs) stomach all the misinformation on this site. And then Elon Musk replies, what is misinformation? And then I, I replied to Elon along with thousands of other people. I said, misinformation is all the new ideas, sensible information, and even facts, okay, that were <laughs> previously shadow banned by Twitter employees. I mean, that's how you define misinformation, things that are inconvenient to the political left or however it's defined by the uh, the little peons working at Twitter and these various platforms. Where can I follow you and your work? Okay. My blog is Climate Etc. And it's at judithcurry.com. Okay, and this is um, a... It has a variety, you know, it's climate, et cetera. So there's some hardcore science-y stuff, and then there's some political stuff. I'm actually going to do a thread this weekend on the, the new social media and Twitter and stuff like that. So there's, you know, some articles that a non-scientist would find interesting and others that they might want to glaze over. Um, since Elon Musk took over, I've become much more active on Twitter my Twitter handle is CurryJA, and um, Twitter has become so much more fun and interesting since Elon Musk took over. <clears throat> so there's, I think, a lot of action going on Twitter right now. And then my company is Climate Forecast Applications Network, and that's cfanclimate.net. So if you do a Google search for me, I mean, you'll eventually find these things, but you'll find all sorts of terrible things about me, which (laughs) Google, um, you know, bumps up to a rather high position. So just in case you do search for Judith Curry, you see all sorts of bad things that people have said about me. But it is what it is. But podcasts and social media and all this is a wonderful way to have a dialogue and to... Mm exchange ideas and help people think. I mean, I don't have the answers, but I want people to think harder (laughs) about all these issues and more broadly. 
Judith Curry, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you. It was fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.